It is our conviction here, and I want to say our humble, happy conviction that the Bible is from beginning to end the Word of God, and that He has left it for us as a gift that we might know His character and know His will. And that in doing so, as we know his character and know his will, that he will not only receive the glory that he is due, for he is God, but that we will be the happiest, the happiest humans that were ever created were Adam and Eve, and for a time, they lived in perfect harmony and fellowship with their creator, And God came and spent time with them daily and spoke to them, and they were happy. Because of sin, fellowship with God was broken, and over time, God sent faithful servants, imperfect yet faithful servants, who wrote God's Word down. And the 66 books of the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, and 27 in the New, were left for us so that the work of redemption might occur and continue in us. God has left us His Word that we might know the means of salvation and that progressively over time we might know Him more and more And that the harmony that was found at creation might be restored. And of course, we await the day when Jesus will return and we will live with God for eternity and we will hear his voice. But in the meantime, we explore the Bible and we worship as we read the Bible. And as our happy, humble conviction here that we should as best we can, go through books of the Bible from beginning to end, reading them in context and seeing what message and application they have for us today as God's people many centuries later. And so we will begin a new study today in the book of Acts. Probably if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've read Acts several times, perhaps you've even heard it taught through in a Sunday school class or perhaps in a preaching series or some other context. But we believe, as we look back at the history of the church, that there is much to be learned and much to be applied. If you can remember perhaps high school or college, most people, including perhaps most of you, hate history. I remember when I was a freshman in college, one of the classes that most freshmen took was history of civilization. It was really history of Western Civ. And we had this sort of uh, distinguished, legendary professor that everybody took the class from. He's the kind of guy that you could ask him any question about anything that had ever happened in Western civilization, and he wouldn't even pause, and he would just keep going. I loved that class. Um, And because I was an evil freshman, one of the reasons I loved that class 
is because we got to grade each other's papers. And um, because I loved the class, I put time into it, and I got good grades. And as I recall, the tests were always like 70 questions. I don't know why that stands out to me. But I remember we would pass the tests around after we took them, and routinely people would miss like 35 or 40 questions. And in my, my evil freshman 18-year-old delight, I remember with glee just marking question after question after question wrong, just thinking all these students around me were total dullards and would never make anything of themselves in life. The truth of the matter is probably all of them are way more successful than me now, but, the, but uh, I love history. And I realize that some of you may not. You might have been some of those students that blew history of Western Civ off. And so when we approach a book like this, which is about history, my fear at the outset is that some of you might say, can we get to stuff about marriage and like child rearing and how we spend our money? And, and we'll talk about some things like that as we go through the book. And we've certainly done through that through the years as we've talked about other books of the Bible. But I want to say to you that that this is living history. In many ways, as you come to the end of Acts chapter 28, it's just an introduction to all that God has done and I can say is continuing to do. One of the things that I will ask God to do, we'll do this at the end of our teaching time today, is to awaken in our hearts a passion for the things that God is passionate about. And as an attempt to do that, let's turn together to Revelation chapter 5 for just a moment. I think this is an appropriate way for us to approach this book with this particular thought in mind that we will see in Revelation chapter 5. The Apostle John, the dear and beloved disciple of Jesus our Lord, was used by God's Spirit to write this prophecy down. Revelation is a book that perhaps one day we will tackle together once we all figure it out. I say that a little tongue-in-cheek. But if nothing else, we can discern the primary emphasis of Revelation. And that is that Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, will finish our redemption will finalize all of his promises to us. One of the highlights of the book of Revelation is in chapter 5. Verse 1, God's word says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Scholars differ over what exactly this scroll was. I suggest that it might be like the deed to the earth, ownership of this globe. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, who also was the lion, by the way, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. John records for us a vision that he had of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, receiving from his Father the deed to the earth, he who earned it, he who was not only God, but he who is Redeemer, for by his blood he has ransomed for himself people from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation, and has made them and us a kingdom and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. My hope is that as we work our way through the book of Acts over the coming months, that we will do more than have our minds filled with facts. I want you to be able to do more than know that Pentecost happened in Acts chapter 2, that Paul was saved by Jesus in Acts chapter 9, that the gospel went to Ephesus and Antioch, that Luke, Paul's traveling companion, wrote the book. I want you to know more than all of that, for if that is all that we accomplish in the coming months, we will have failed. It is my hope and it is my prayer, and I I ask you to prayerfully now engage as we begin this study through the book of Acts. It is my prayer and hope that we will have this response, we will have this spirit, that we will value the things that God values, and that we will by faith believe that in so valuing, we will find the greatest joy. Because of our pride and our willful rebellion, we humans believed that we could be happiest if we determined our own destiny, if we were our own gods. But God, in His great mercy, has sent His Son to rescue us from that lie, for it is a lie. And the truth of the matter is, the message of the Bible and the story of human history is one of grace. And almost every single one of us who are gathered here together today are recipients of that grace, are objects of His mercy. 
And it is our privilege to enjoy him both now and for forever. And also to make him known here and around the world. For if we understand the glory of God, we will not be able to help the glory of God being exclaimed from our lips, being modeled in our homes, being the greatest value that we have in our worldview. To put it very simply, our God is the most glorious being that we could ever conceive of and far beyond our imagination. And he has rescued us and brought us back to himself through the glorious gospel of his son Jesus. And for this lifetime that we share, and in the coming ages without end, we will plumb the depths of the glory of God. And through it, he will be worshipped, for he is due worship. And in doing so, we will be the happiest. And so I hope and I pray that as we study together through the book of Acts, that we will have a renewed vision of the glory of God shown in the person of his son Jesus and that we will value him so highly and love him and the world around us that we will not be able to help his good news being reflected in our lives and proclaimed by our lips. So, my brothers and sisters, this is not mere history. Though it is true history, it is more than that. This is the record of God displaying His glory on the earth through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the welcome He gives us that we might go and welcome others to know and treasure him supremely as well. Now, if you are like me, and I suspect that you are, such a challenge and such an opportunity is not always met with delight. Let me explain what I mean. It is relatively easy on a Sunday... If the sermon is decent, songs are good, the prayers are genuine and not too long, we have a good day with our families, it's possible to have a day where we do light in God supremely. But, but how many of us have known countless weeks that have gone by that by the time that Sunday night or Monday morning inevitably rolls around that our passion for the glory of God, our satisfaction in God, and our commitment to worship Him wanes. Isn't that frustrating? Isn't it frustrating to have a vision of the glory of God? To know that He is our supreme treasure. To have a renewed commitment to love and serve Him supremely. To see it 
falter away, to see it flicker away like a candle in the wind so quickly. How many weeks have you and I experienced that very thing? And so when we talk about God, the glory of God, that God is our greatest treasure, that the hope of the gospel is is not really a mansion in the sky somewhere, but the real hope of the gospel is that we get God back. Maybe you've never quite thought of it like that. The gospel, the good news, is that we get God back. If we're being honest, theologically, cognitively, that sounds good. It preaches well. But if we're being honest, a lot of us right now considering that idea that the greatest gift of the gospel is that we get God back that does not fall on hearts and make them necessarily very happy. It doesn't necessarily warm our affections. It doesn't necessarily thrill us. We struggle with sin. We struggle with idolatry. We struggle with inferior treasures. But I believe that in the coming weeks and months, the Holy Spirit, by His grace, can awaken our hearts once again for the glory of God and for our mutual joy so that two basic things will happen. Here are our two goals as we explore this book together. More than mere transfer of knowledge, here are the two things that I pray will happen for us in the coming months. First, that we will grow with a rock-solid faith that Jesus is building His church and will keep all of His promises to us. First of all, I pray that we will be convinced that our hearts will be captured with the notion that Jesus Christ is building His church and will keep all of His promises to us. And this is no small thing, for you are like me, and you have doubtful hearts. The second thing that I hope and pray Jesus will do for us in the coming months is that He will capture our hearts and minds and propel us and compel us with the conviction that we should make Him known. That whatever your vocation is, if you write software, if you take care of kids at home, if you're a school teacher, if you're a pastor, if you're an attorney or a physician or any other vocation under the sun, that you will recognize that as a rescued, redeemed child of God, as a son or daughter of God, your life is to be a reflection of the implications of the gospel. And more than this, your lips are to be used to proclaim the good news of Jesus. It is my hope and prayer that we will, first of all, 
be captured with the notion that Jesus will keep all of his promises to us until the end. And that in light of this, drawing from that, whatever vocation we have, that we will spend our lives making much of Jesus and making him known. That's what Revelation 5 is all about. I've shared this with some of you before, but it's a great story from a time gone by. A long time ago, there was a man named Count Zinzendorf. He was a territorial ruler in a place called Moravia. Count Zinzendorf, after the fallout of the Protestant Reformation, became a believer in Jesus Christ. He trusted Jesus as his only hope for salvation. And because of his position, he influenced many, many people. In fact, the Moravians were the first true Western missionaries. They began sending people all over the known world. In fact, they would send people all the way across the Atlantic in boats whenever such a journey was perilous at best. There's a story of a couple of the early Moravian missionaries who were going to go to the West Indies. Their families thought they were crazy. They thought that they were wasting their lives, that they were putting themselves in peril, and they were putting themselves in peril. As they launched away from the shore and got in the boat to sail away to a place that they'd only heard of, to a people they had never met, a language they had never spoken, with dangers untold and sea and on land, with their very lives hanging in the balance, their families and friends implored them as they launched from the dock, don't go, you are wasting your lives. And the missionaries cried out from the deck of the boat, is not the lamb worthy to receive the reward of his sufferings? That sounds like a great story. That's a compelling story. We like that. We like to know people like that. But how many of us live anywhere close to that? Perhaps in the coming months, God would awaken many of us to be more faithful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus to our neighbors. Perhaps the Spirit will compel us in the coming months to be more faithful and generous in giving our resources that this church and others may make Jesus known around the world. Perhaps the Holy Spirit may grip the hearts of our children, our older children who are sitting in these seats, and he might send some of them into places where the gospel needs to be made known. Perhaps in the coming months he might grip the hearts of people who are happy and aren't considering any change in trajectory and instead might take one of our families and put them in a place where Jesus needs to be made known for the lamb is worthy to receive the reward of his sufferings. Maybe he'll do some of those things. So today we are going to begin just a little kickoff, a look into the basic themes of 
the book of Acts, which is really not so much the Acts of the Apostles. If you're looking at your Bible right now, that's the title probably that most of you have there. But that's really not the story of the book of Acts. The story of the book of Acts is really not the story of a bunch of courageous people. The story of the book of Acts is mostly about what Jesus did through normal people like you and me. So let's look at the major message of the book of Acts and begin to apply it to our hearts as we start together to walk through this book. First, Jesus Christ has and will continue to build his church. Jesus Christ has and will continue to build his church. Luke wrote this book. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Some scholars believe that Luke actually intended this to be one primary work, one joined together work, but that the words were so many, the volume of writing was so large that there wasn't a reasonable scroll that could hold all of it together and therefore it ended up in two parts. You may not know this, but Luke wrote the most words of any author in our New Testaments. More than Paul, more than John. Luke and John have more individual works, but Luke wrote several thousand more words than even Paul. Luke was detailed, meticulous in his recordings. He was a physician, and as many scholars have said, this enabled him and prepared him to be a good recorder of history. He was precise. The Gospel of Luke, in many ways, is a recording of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke's book of Acts is all that Jesus continued, and dare I say, continues to do through his people. So God left for us a record of Jesus continuing to work through his church. Let me try to prove that to you. In chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven after his resurrection. While staying with them, with his apostles, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, and then he ascends back into heaven. In verse 1 of this chapter, Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, he was the primary recipient of this letter, but of course it was for the churches as well. In the first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen To them he presented, verse 3, himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what was Luke about? All that Jesus began to do and teach. What is Acts about? Acts is about the gospel getting to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, verse 8. And how will this come to pass? It will come to pass by the power of God. And what we will find, if we are careful to see, is that as we work through the book of Acts, we will see Jesus doing just that. Jesus not only gives his people a command here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he makes sure it comes to pass. So I'm hinting at this idea. What you will see in the coming months as we explore this book, we will take it in pretty big chunks because it's narrative, it's stories. We'll take big stories at a time. What you will find is that the apostles and their followers are faithful to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. They do get the gospel to these various concentric circles. But Jesus is working from heaven to bring it to pass. Jesus Christ has and will continue to build his church, which gave Luke's audience confidence. Theophilus wanted to know how God had built his church through his son Jesus. The churches that had been planted by people like Paul and Luke wanted to know what had God done through his son Jesus. This was important because they were the minority in a majority world. What I mean is, they were not the majority in their individual cities. People of faith in Jesus Christ the Messiah, the only way back to God, the only hope for life, they were the minority that believed this. And are we not the same? I love being with my friends in this community who have not trusted Jesus. We've been in this community long enough and invested in schools and sports teams and neighbors long enough to have some pretty close friends. We like to be with them. We like to have opportunities to influence them and opportunities, hopefully, to speak the gospel to them. But I can feel when I am with them that it's not the same. I can feel when I am with them that I am the minority. And I want to know that Jesus will keep his promises to me because I often feel like an alien. I, I often feel like an outcast. And my faith can falter. My affections for Jesus can wane. They, they can lessen. And what do I need to know as an alien sojourner in this land where it seems like I am the minority and and evil often seems to win. I need to know that the hope of the gospel is true and sure. That Jesus, whom I have trusted, will continue to keep his promises and build his church. I need to know that far more than just as a pastor. I need to know that as a worshiper. And what we will learn together as we work through the book of Acts is that Jesus Christ has and will continue to build his church. Sometimes I hear people say that one of the great hopes of Christianity is that we know we win. Maybe some of us have even said that before. 
I get what people mean when they say that. But doesn't that sound a little triumphalistic? I don't really like that language so much. Yes, Jesus, people win in the end. Yes, righteousness will reign. Yes, evil will be put down. But we must guard ourselves against the triumphalistic feeling that that we are better than others around us. For the truth of the matter is, my friends, we didn't come to God of our own volition. We are recipients, recipients of His sovereign grace outside of our own volition. He did it by His grace. And with no sense of triumphalism, I hope that with humble confidence we will trust Jesus and hope that others will come in. Jesus Christ has and will continue to build his church and will keep all of his promises to us. We struggle with this. We struggle with believing that God will do that. Has there ever been a more anxious people than this one? Which is ironic, right? Because what do we lack? We have multiple cars that rarely break down. We could actually drink the water that comes out of our shower heads. None of us would do that because that's nasty. But most people in the world don't have clean water. We could drink the water we bathe in. We can't remember the last time we missed a meal. Our bank accounts are relatively flush. We're basically healthy, and if we're not, we have access to health care that can make us healthy and specialists in every conceivable way that can deal with every part of our body. As we rehearse our stories over time, most of us have been alive for several decades, has not God proven over and over again that He sees us and cares for us? But has there ever been a more anxious people than our culture? We struggle to believe that we will be okay. It's a simple way to look at life, but but we do. We struggle to believe that we will be okay. Some of you young ones who are in here today who are in middle school or high school now, you're starting to feel that more and more. You're starting to see the seriousness of life and how hard it is to walk this life. And sometimes you wonder, will we be okay? The book of Acts tells us that Jesus Christ will keep all of his promises and that we will be okay in the end. By what means? Well, let me suggest four that Acts teaches us. First of all, he will do so by the power of his spirit. Jesus will continue to build his church by the power of his spirit. I've already read to you Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 that the apostles and their followers were to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came, and that's exactly what happens in chapter 2. So we'll be here in a couple of weeks. The Holy Spirit comes down upon the apostles and their followers, and the world would never be the same. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place waiting. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we know that on that 
first day of the church, so to speak, thousands were saved. And as you learn at the end of chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How does God rescue people? How does Jesus keep his promises to build the church? By divine aid, by the third person of the Trinity, by the power of his Spirit. Here's what I'm saying to you. You are not alone. If the prospect of making part of your normal weekly routine, seeking out people to whom you can share the good news of Jesus, if that freaks you out, one of the things that God's Spirit will do for us in the coming months of study through the book of Acts is prove to us that we're not alone. You cannot convince anyone to trust Jesus. You cannot give anyone a new heart. You cannot make anyone believe. But you're not alone. And as we will learn later on in the book of Acts, the Lord Jesus has many people in this city. And by His Spirit will take us to those people we need merely open our mouths. Jesus will build His church by the power of His Spirit. And we saw this recently as we studied through the book of Ephesians. But I want to remind you that the Spirit with which you have been sealed dwells within you. And corporately, according to Paul in his letter to the Ephesian church, dwells within us. The Holy Spirit lives in this church. I can say without any hesitation, God is here today. Why? Because His people are here. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And Jesus will keep all of His promises to you and to us by the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We will learn much about the Holy Spirit as we study through the book of Acts. Luke is very careful to not just make this a history of brave people. Luke is very careful in recording the 28 chapters of Acts and teaching us that the Spirit is with us always, that God is building His church. Secondly, Jesus Christ has and will continue to build His church through faith-filled prayer. Jesus, as we've already learned, told His disciples to stay together in Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Spirit. And so we find in chapter 1, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This was the norm for them. They felt helpless. They were scared. They were worried. Their Lord even though he had risen, had left them physically. So what did they do? They banded together and prayed. Most of us are like this. Most of us have the tendency, the temptation, to pray when we're needy and to fail to pray when the sun is shining. To pray when we know we have lack but to give up on it whenever we are dwelling in a period of plenty. To cry out when we're in trouble, but to be silent whenever we think we have the world by the tail. How was it that churches were planted 
in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world? How was it that the gospel pushed back against the darkness? How so? Because people prayed. And they drew upon the power that was at their disposal. That's what prayer does. Prayer changes us, and prayer draws upon the power and favor of God. Jesus teaches us this. If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, if our children ask us for a piece of bread, we would never give them a stone. God won't do that either. He won't give us stone. And so I say to you, my beloved, let us pray in times of plenty and in times of need. Let us implore heaven that not only will our own hearts be changed the process of prayer, but that God will unleash his favor and power in and through us. James teaches us that we do not have because what? We do not ask. Would you like to see the flame of your faith endure the powerful winds of idolatry? Would you? Perhaps you and I don't because we don't ask. Would you like to see your neighbors not only hear but trust the gospel of Jesus? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't I? Maybe we don't have because we don't ask. You find that after the church is formed in chapter 2, that the people devoted themselves, verse 42, not only to teaching and fellowship and to breaking of bread, communion, but to prayers. It was part of their regular rhythm of worship. We find that at times of trouble and trial, the believers continued to pray. Look in chapter 4 with me. I'm, I'm just suggesting that these themes show up many times in the book of Acts, and I'm merely giving you some samples. Peter and John were released from having been arrested by the officials in Jerusalem. And when they were released, verse 23, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, when the company of believers heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, verse 29, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, continue to speak your word with all boldness. And they asked more. And verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled, I would say, freshly with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Are you a fearful evangelist? I am a lot of the time. How will that change? Not just this, but how will my confidence that Jesus will keep his promises to me and that I will be okay? 
this promise is that, that I can make it to the end with persevering faith, how? Let us pray individually, as families, and, and as a church. Jesus Christ will continue to build his church as we pray. Thirdly, Jesus Christ has and will continue to build his church by redeeming suffering. I suspect that this will touch us several times as we work through the book of Acts. Let me just suggest where this shows up in a few places. Peter and John were suffering for their faith, but they gather back together with the church, as we just read in chapter 4, and pray. In chapter 7, Stephen, one of the first deacons, so to speak, of the church, is also a preacher of the gospel. What did he get for that? In Acts chapter 7, he was stoned for his faithful proclamation of the word. But what happened as a result of Stephen having been stoned? After Stephen was stoned, the gospel went out. In chapter 8, verse 1, you find this. Saul approved of his execution. Saul, who would be better known as Paul. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. What's happening here? Jesus is redeeming suffering. Was it a tragic and awful, treacherous sin that Stephen was stoned? Yes. We can say that without equivocation. But guess what happened? The believers are spread out. And guess where the gospel goes now? Chapters 1 through 7, it's in Jerusalem. But guess where it goes now? Just like Jesus said it would in Acts chapter 1, to Judea and Samaria. Jesus redeemed the suffering of his servant. In chapter 9, when Paul is converted, Ananias, who will be sort of Paul's first discipler, is told to proclaim to Paul, he will suffer great things for my name. And Paul would, for out the rest of his life up until the end, when his head is lopped off for his faith, he would suffer for the rest of his life. But out of the seedbed of the suffering of the saints, the church was built. Which means that God will not waste any of our suffering either. In fact, God tends to do the most when we suffer. When we're happy and everything is going well, we like it. None of us like trial. None of us like trouble. But have we not found in our own experience, as well as when we read the Bible, that God redeems suffering and does the most through it? This means that we can enter into periods of suffering not detesting them, not losing faith, but humbly, expectantly waiting to see what God will do through them. And maybe today you find yourself on the cusp of a season of suffering, or maybe you don't even know it's coming. But I say to you, and I love you when I say this, God will never waste one ounce of your suffering, but will do such good through it. Jesus Christ will always keep his promises. And one of the ways he does this is by redeeming suffering, by turning it around by the power of his love. And fourthly and lastly, Jesus has and will continue to build his church to keep his promises through courageous proclamation. In other words, if his kingdom is to be made known, if it's going to spread, people have to know about it. 
people have to hear it. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It is absolutely true that the implications of the gospel must be reflected in our lives, but the gospel message must be spoken with our lips. This means that we have the privilege and, yes, the responsibility to make the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who is worthy to receive the reward for his sufferings, known through our lips. And I hope and pray that in the coming months that we won't be so freaked out by that. That rather than, than seeing that as something that only the, the righteous militant saints do, and the rest of us normal saints don't, that we will develop a taste for proclamation, that we will do so because we love and treasure Jesus and we love the world around us, and that that will catch fire in this church. There is so much good here. I know I speak for the elders when I say that we love to shepherd you. It is a privilege. You are a uniquely special people, but we have room to grow. And this is one of those areas that we would grow in our determination and trust in Jesus that by the power of his spirit, using things like our own suffering, that the proclamation of the gospel through this church family would be made known. Most of our neighbors have untold wealth. My little boy from the rainforest of Ethiopia asked me yesterday, Dad, are we rich? How do I answer that? If I say to him, I don't have a barn with 15 Ferraris in it, therefore I'm not rich, that's true, right? But compared to where he's from, we are. And so our neighbors have so much. And the idolatry of the American dream with, with which we struggle to, which chokes our affections for Jesus, it masks our need. We have to begin to see beyond nice homes and luxury cars and full bank accounts and kids who play on travel sports teams and families that seem to think they have the world by the tail. We've, we've got to see beyond that and see the need that only Jesus can fill. And so may God through his spirit Grant us to believe that Jesus is not only worthy to receive the reward of his sufferings, but is with us and will help us. So we have much to learn. And I hope that this will be more than an exercise in just learning ancient history, but that it will transform more than our minds. It will transform our hearts and engage our will that we together as a people will treasure Jesus and that through us he will bring others to do the same. Let's pray together and then we'll sing.